Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, again, I want to read verse 8 just so it's uh, fresh in our minds, but we've been walking through uh, this little series on the Christian mindset, and I uh, want to look at the uh, next attribute or next characteristic of things that we are to uh, dwell upon. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, and I want to read verse 8. Uh, this is what Paul writes. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, and I keep mentioning this because I think it's important, but again, the whatevers is not limitation. Uh, this is not just giving boundaries. Uh, this isn't a, oh, you can't think about anything. Uh, this is actually, it's, it's, it's a freeing list. This is a list that's supposed to be like, oh, finally, I now have freedom to think about all the good things, that, that I don't have to live in the, the constriction of fear and impurity and, and that which is just dishonorable, and that this is actually a list that should get you excited, and so I know we're all tired this morning, but we should be jumping up and down. Oh. And at least Josh is smiling. So that's it. Well, Aaron's smiling too. That's good. So we got two people who are excited at the fact uh, that, that this is an exciting list. And the rest of us will catch up here in a little bit. Uh, again, we've been walking through this list and we looked at this idea of that which is true. We looked at this idea of that which is honorable. Uh, last time we looked at this idea of that which is right. And uh, today I want to look at this idea of that which is pure. Paul says you can think about whatever you want if it's pure. Uh, the word there for pure has this idea of purity in all things. Uh, it has this idea of being undefiled or innocent or holy. Uh, it has this idea of wholeness or integrity associated with it. And what's really fascinating is that the root word for this word is the word holy which is why we have, it has this idea of holiness associated with it. Uh, the word holiness, this idea of being set apart throughout the scriptures, uh, that idea is just all over the place. Uh, in fact, the word saint in the New Testament comes from the word holy. So what are you to be? You are a holy one. Isn't that awesome? That when you embrace Jesus Christ and you actually uh, allow him to fully transform your life, and you are now coming under the authority and the influence of the Spirit of God, you are now no longer a sinner. You are now called a saint. Oh, isn't that awesome? Which means you're a holy one. You're, you're one that has been changed. You're one that has been set apart. You're one that has been transformed, and, and now you're looking more and more like him. And because he is holy and he's called you to be holy, th th this is that reality, and so it's interesting to me that this word pure has that connotation with it. Uh, it gives this idea of, of not just sexual purity. In other words, that's often what we think about when we hear the word purity. We, we immediately think of sexual purity. And, and obviously that's associated in the passage. 
But it even goes beyond that idea, and it goes to every area of your life. And what's interesting, that idea of holiness is this idea of having a, uh, something that is set apart, something that is distinguished, something that is uh, for a special use. It's other than, uh, for example, uh, there are some people who have a special cabinet in their house that has some dishes, but you don't ever get to use the dishes. In fact, they are so special, we call the cabinet a very fine china cabinet. And it is, it is locked. You, can't, you can barely even see through the, see through the glass. Why? Because this dinnerware is so precious to us that we're going to hide it. And we're only going to bring it out once a year, and it's going to be for really special guests, which tells you how your parents think about you. You know? <laughs> you know? It's just like, this is not what you eat normally. This is, this is not the kind of stuff you just have normal dinners on. I mean, this is like when a special VIP comes into town, you know, and you're like, all right, we're going to break out the fine china. And you're like, whoa, this is not going to be a normal dinner. And that, that set of dishes is set apart. It is distinguished for a special use. It, in our context, if I could use the illustration, it's holy. And Paul says, you know what you're to be thinking upon? That which is pure. Uh, this word, when you look at the classical idea of how this word was used throughout classical Greek, it was often associated with the things in the temples or uh, speaking about the, I, this idea of the things that were ritually cleansed for the purpose of worship, which I really love that idea. And, and as you follow the trajectory of the word, eventually became known as this idea of inward moral excellence or moral purity. But think about your life. Do you realize that you are to be cleansed and purified and transformed and set apart as an instrument of worship. And in other words, you just can't worship with dirty objects and dirty things and things that are just common use. That, hey, when you look at the, the temple of the Jews, everything in the temple had to be consecrated. Everything in the temple had to be made holy. Everything in the, in the temple had to have this covering, this cleansing, this purification on it. Why? Because this is the temple of the Lord God Almighty. And so therefore, we're not just going to use a normal table. This is going to be a special table. This is going to be a holy table unto the Lord. We're not just going to use any kind of a lampstick. We are going to use a special lampstick that has been consecrated and cleansed and purified for the purpose of worship. Is this making any sense? So when you look at your life, do you realize that you are an instrument of worship? Or if you want Paul's language, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit which means you need a cleansing, a, a holiness to invade your life so that you will be a set-apart vessel for worship unto the Lord our God. And again, Paul says in Corinthians that everything you do is worship. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for his glory. And so as, as Christians, we have to remember that we are the set-apart ones. We are the holy ones. We are the ones that are to be cleansed and transformed and, and different than the world around us. Why? Because God wants to use us for something. Everyone awake? Some of you are wondering. Uh, when you look at our culture today, isn't it so fascinating how we're not this word <laughs> as a culture? I mean, you look at almost anything in culture. Uh, you can take the news. Uh, you can take entertainment. Uh, you can take sports. Uh, you can take uh, worldly success. You can take dress. Uh, you could take 
refreshment and vacation kind of stuff. It's almost like any area you want to go into, one word that I would use to define our culture today is not this one. In fact, I would use the opposite. I would say we actually live in a rather impure, immodest, defiled, twisted uh, reality. Uh, you look at the advertisements that come out, and I don't, I don't watch commercials, but, uh, but if, you, if you just kind of hear the tone of commercials, you realize uh, what sells is sexuality. And so even stuff that has nothing to do with sexuality, they're using sexuality to sell it, like cars. What does that have to do with anything? Cigarettes. What does that have to do with sexuality? And yet, if you ever watch the adver- don't do it. But if you ever watch the advertisements, isn't it fascinating? Alcohol. How do they sell alcohol? Well, you, you always see these partly clad people at a bar, and it's just it's all driven by sexuality. And it's not a pure version, it's all a twisted version of it. So our whole culture is getting wrapped up in this impure thing. And by the way, that's not new. That has always been around. And yes, it is fluxed from, from generation to generation. But do you know how similar we are to ancient Rome? Do you know what was the driving influence of, of ancient Rome when, when Christianity was coming on the scene? It was sports. It was politics. It was sexuality. It was pornography. It was... I mean, you start going down through the list of all the stuff that we were addicted to as a culture, and then you look at ancient Rome and you go, hmm, so really, it is fascinating. We are quite the same, though that excites me. Because if the early church could turn that world upside down, you realize it can happen again. That's encouraging to me. And just as, hey, things are getting darker and darker in, in our world, hey, I understand that. But hey, it was a lot darker back in those days. And hey, if, if the early church could turn that world upside down, oh, what, could, what could happen today? Uh, Isaiah 5.20, I think, clarifies a great, or uh, it simplifies, or it gives a declaration of the times in which we live in a, in a really neat way. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's a great statement of our culture today. Hey, if it's good, we're calling it evil. And if it's evil, we're calling it good. And so when you look at culture, especially in light of this idea of purity, do you realize that what we deem as good in our culture is actually that which is actually evil and twisted and immoral and just... Did you... I, I presume you do, you do know this. But you do realize that the church is not to look like the world. Uh, the culture today, and, and what's really sad to me, is even in the church culture today, we are lowering the standard for what it means to be pure, what it means to be holy, what it means to be righteous. And, and it's like we're looking at the world and we're saying, well, you know, everything's just getting worse, and so we better lower our standards so that someone has hope of even of living it. And isn't it sad that you look at where the church is today of our standards and it was actually where the culture standards were like 50 years ago? I mean, we were, we were on this progressive decline to the point where we were redefining all, all, everything. We're redefining sexuality. We're redefining marriage. We're redefining, we're redefining everything. 
And we're saying, well, what, what, is, what does this look like? Well, we're, we're dumbing all this stuff down to a low, lowest common denominator idea. And, and we're trying to actually appease and look like more like the world. Why? Well, we're trying to win the world, so we've got to try to woo them in. So let's dumb this thing down. Isn't it interesting that we are debating all these things that Scripture is quite clear on? As if we have an opinion on, on the matter? By the way, you know, in the very end, do you know whose opinion actually matters? Not yours. There's only one opinion that matters. It's God's. Have you ever been to a baseball game and uh, the ump has a really bad call? In fact, you're convinced of it. In fact, the whole crowd is convinced of it and the whole crowd is screaming and yelling at the ump. And yet, isn't it fascinating? He does not care. Why? Because your opinion doesn't count. Your perspective on that call actually means nothing. It was his opinion alone that actually matters in the game. And you realize at the end of all things, your definition of purity actually is not going to mean anything. Culture's definition of purity is not going to mean anything. Even how the church is redefining purity in our modern age is not going to mean anything. Do you know what's going to mean something in the end? God's opinion on the matter. His opinion is the only one that matters. So rather than trying to squint and squeeze and go, well, I actually think Scripture, well, I think we could potentially understand it if we, if we look at it this way. Why don't we say God is quite clear, and if someone's going to be wrong, I'm going to be wrong, and this thing's going to be right, which means I have to submit myself under the authority of the Word and say, Lord, <laughs> I'm wrong, and my opinions are wrong, and my perspective may be wrong, and my attitude may be wrong, and my lifestyle may be wrong, but Lord, I am declaring that you are right. Does that make any sense to you? Because this, his opinion is what matters, folks. I love what one commentator said. I just really love this quote. Listen to this. He said, in the early church, Christians never had any doubt that they must be different from the world. They, in fact, knew that they must be so different that the probability was that the world would kill them and it certainly was that the world would hate them. But the tendency in the modern church has been to play down the difference between the church and the world. We have, in effect, often said to people, well, as long as you live a decent, respectable life, it is quite all right to become a church member and to call yourself a Christian. You don't need to be so very different from other people when, in fact, Christians should be easily identifiable in the world. Christ does not take us out of this world. He makes us different within the world. It's a great statement. Do you realize that when the world looks upon your life, <clears throat> they should easily go, hmm, you're not one of us. Why? Because you are a holy one. You've been set apart. And you realize if you are going to be a set apart, walking in holiness kind of an individual as a, as a, as a believer, that has to start in your mind. God has to renew your mind. God has to, has to deal with your mind. Because if you are not pure in your mind, you will not be pure in your life. Do you realize how often this is in Scripture? If you ever want to do an intriguing study, <clears throat> do a study on this idea of a purity or sexual immorality and look at how, how often the Scriptures talk about you are to live a pure life. It is all over the place. And I think one of the reasons is they're talking to first century Roman people. 
where pornography was as readily available as it is today in a whole different form. I, I get that. And probably today's a lot easier. We just whip out our phones and push a button. But you realize it was so prevalent in that day. Uh, homosexuality was prevalent. Uh, sensuality was prevalent. Temple prostitution was prevalent. I mean, all this stuff was just at the fingertips of, of the ancient world. And so the early church kept saying, uh, you need to walk in purity. Uh, you need to walk in purity. Uh, you need to walk in purity. And since you don't look convinced, let me give you a few of these. Uh, the early church met together and they were trying to decide, does, does the Gentiles who are becoming believers, do they need to become Jews? In other words, do we need to circumcise them? Do they, do, do they need to hold on to the law? What do they need to do in order to become a believer in Jesus Christ? And so they met together and this is what they decided. There were three key things that they are to do, to hold tight to. So in Acts 15, 29, they write the letter and it says this, you are to abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from acts of sexual immorality. Isn't that interesting that that one made the list? Idols totally makes sense to me. The blood thing, that does make sense in light of the whole Jewish thing. But then they're like, be pure. Don't, don't live like the world around you. And by the way, we're talking even beyond just the thought life impurity or the actual acts of sexual immorality. That this idea of purity actually is to invade everything that you do. Right? It's this idea of integrity. But again, isn't it fascinating that the early church said, this is really important to us. That in the, in the scheme of things, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, one of the identifiers as a Christian should be sexual purity. That there's not this fornication thing. That there's not this pollution. There's not this twistedness. There's not this immorality in your life. You look at our modern church today, and it's interesting. You start looking at some of the statistics that are out. And, of course, you know, 54.3% of statistics are made up on the spot. But I don't know what the number actually is. I did make that up on the spot. But... And we, we know you can do whatever you want with statistics. But when you start to look at some of the statistics coming out, you realize that when you look at the, the young guys, you know, between the ages of like 16 and mid-20s, there really isn't much difference between those inside the church and those outside the church of those who are viewing pornography. I, I think the number was like upwards of almost 50% of pastors at least look at pornography once a month. Pastors. And you realize if it's, if it's in the leadership that is trickling down into the people because there's no guard. If you're the shepherd, you're supposed to keep out the stuff. You're held to a higher standard. And so, hey, if it, and I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's upwards of 50%. Do, do you realize what this means for our body, the, the church today? And yet God says, I desire a pure and spotless bride. Folks, we are not pure or spotless. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. He says, flee it, run. It's like that Joseph and Potiphar's wife idea, right? Temptation shows up. Don't stick around and argue with it. Don't debate it. Don't try to win it over to Jesus. Just get out of there. Flee it. Galatians 5. Paul begins to make a list of the fruits of the flesh, uh, the, the realities of the carnal nature. And he says, hey, the, the deeds or the fruit of the flesh are evident. 
Now listen to the first several of these. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry. Isn't it interesting that the first several ones on that list all have to do with this idea of purity? So he says, hey, let me, let me give you this list of what this carnal, selfish nature that Christ is to put to death in your life looks like. These should not be in your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a scary passage for our modern church today. That, hey, if you want to indulge in that, fine, but don't expect to make it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes this incredible statement, and, and you, you know it well. But Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. And we're going to be talking about love next time, but you realize that love doesn't take, love gives. Impurity always grabs. Lust always takes. Lust consumes. Love gives. He says, so walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for us and offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Get this. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or foolish talking or vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person which amounts to an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. For whatever reason, we tend to forget those little add-on statements. For there shall not be the kingdom of heaven. That's not nice in today's culture. That is not seeker-sensitive in today's culture. And again, we as the church are dumbing down our standards by saying, well, Hey, guys are going to be guys. Everyone's addicted. Hey, everyone's dealing with impure stuff. So uh, maybe if we can just dumb this thing down a little bit, just don't commit adultery. But hey, if you need to indulge pornography, sure, whatever. But hey, just, and I've heard that before from platforms, from, from, from pulpits. Why? Because we're trying to, and yet do you realize that what Paul is saying is that this shouldn't even be named among you. Which, by the way, for clarity's sake, does not mean let's not talk about it. What it means is that if someone's to scrutinize your life with a fine-tooth comb, there wouldn't be anything there to find. That they couldn't find anything to mention. It's not there. First Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you know what God's will for your life is? that you would be sanctified, you'd be made holy. And then Paul clarifies and says, which means you're going to have to abstain from sexual immorality. Hey, that this whole impurity thing is not to be a part of your life. Revelation 21.8. This is a convicting passage. Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexual immoral persons, 
and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, will, will, uh, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Well, seems clear, even though I don't like it. It's interesting that Paul looked at Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, Timothy, I know you're a young guy, but let no one despise you for your youthfulness, but rather set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. It's interesting that as you walk through First and Second Timothy, several times, Paul says, this is what the world is doing, this is what the world looks like, and then he says, but you, to Timothy. And what is he saying? He's saying, you're not to look like the world. The world looks like this, but you are to do this. Hey, the world looks like this, but Timothy set an example. Hey, the world may be going quickly down a slippery slope to hell, but Timothy set the example. Walk in righteousness and purity and holiness and truth. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul says, keep yourself pure. Some translations say, keep yourself free from sin. Which is our word. Hey, th- th- there should be this I shouldn't just be indulging. There shouldn't just be this grabbing a hold of that, that I should desire holiness in the very depths of my being. And again, this is, I understand sanctification is a lifelong process. I get that. That he's rooting out and he's, he's bringing about greater and greater purity. He's, he's bringing greater and greater righteousness. He's bringing about greater and greater holiness. And praise the Lord for that. But you realize that if the Holy Spirit is pointing his, putting his finger on something in your life to say, <clears throat> see that? That is not to be in your life. Then why are we trying to hold on to those things? Why, why are we trying to hold on to those habits, those addictions, those lifestyles, those thought processes, those whatever? And, if, and again, if I can encourage you or remind you, when we're talking about purity, we're not just talking sexual purity. I mean, we are, but we're, it's more than that. Because purity should invade every aspect of your life. So we're talking about your thoughts, how you speak, your actions, your sexuality, your honesty, your work ethic, your interaction with others, how you spend time alone, everything should be marked by purity. That there's this integrity, that there's this holiness in your life. Now, I should just say, let's just pray and just close up. But if you're like me, I'd be sitting there going, okay, how? <laughs> because if we live in the culture in which we do, which is an impure culture, how on earth as we as Christians going to ever live pure in an impure culture? So let me give you two ideas. Number one, you've got to keep your focus on Jesus. Do you realize that he is the pure one? He is the holy one. He's the only one by nature who is holy. In other words, nothing is holy on its own, outside of God. Does that make any sense? He is intrinsically holy. So if anything is holy, they derive their holiness from him. So he is the only holy one. Hey, the best you can pull off is filthy rags, like we talked about last time. So how are you going to produce holiness? You can't. So you have no option to walk in purity. You have no option to walk in holiness outside of Jesus. So how do you become holy? Holy. Do you know what the secret to holiness is? 
not doing holy things as if it's a checklist. The secret to holiness is embracing the one who is holy. And it's in the embrace of the one who is holy where you find yourself becoming holy. He is holy. He is pure. He is righteous and true. And it's in the embrace of him that you find yourself becoming holy. Does that make sense? In other words, if you reach down into your own pockets and you try to produce holiness, all you're going to get is more flesh. You're going to get more filthy rack stuff. So what is the only option I've got to walk in holiness? Embrace the one who is holy. And it's in the embrace of the one who is holy that I find myself becoming holy. I've talked about this so many times even in this series, but there's this idea that whatever we focus on grows bigger and stronger in our lives. So if you want Jesus to grow bigger and stronger in your life, you've got to keep your focus on Jesus. The moment I turn my gaze from Jesus and put it upon some temptation or sin, it's only a matter of time before I give into it. Because the principle is whatever I focus on grows bigger and stronger in my life. So if I'm focusing on a temptation, it's going to start growing bigger and stronger in my life, and eventually it's going to overpower me, and I'm going to have to submit and give into it. So what if I didn't put my focus there? What, what if I would keep my focus steadfast on Jesus Christ? Now, we're not talking literally, right? We're talking spiritually. What, what would happen if that temptation came knocking this afternoon, and instead of turning your gaze and indulging in the temptation, or even trying to fight the temptation, and be like, I don't want to have this thought. Get away. Do you realize what you're doing is you're just meditating on that thought? It's like that cheesy illustration about a pink elephant. Have we, have we, I think we've done the pink elephant, right? Where it's like, for 10 seconds, don't think of a pink elephant. Ready? Go. No pink elephants. Seriously, stop thinking about pink elephants. You can think about whatever you want, but no pink elephants. Stop thinking of pink elephants. What are you thinking of? Pink elephants. So the key then is not to like grit your teeth and say, don't think about, don't think about the sin. Don't think about the sin. Don't think about the sin. The key is turn your gaze upon something better. And when your mind is turned upon the Lord, you realize what begins to happen is that you are so captured and captivated by him that you quit thinking about the junk. So a practical example, you're driving on the road, there's a billboard that shouldn't be there, and you see it. The fact that you saw it is not the issue. You didn't put the billboard up. Hey, you were just glancing. The key, though, is you cannot give that thought a single rotation in your mind. You cannot dwell upon it. So what do you do? You kick it out. Nope, not thinking about it. You turn your gaze, and you set your mind on something higher. I think I've told you guys, but uh, there's a, I'll bet you I've, I pray this at least dozens of times a day, every day for probably 15 years. And it's, Lord, will you capture me and captivate me? And, and what I really mean by that is, Lord, will you capture my attention? And then would you, be, would you so captivate me by your, by your grandeur and greatness and your glory that I actually desire to look at nothing else? Lord, capture and captivate me. Just capture me, captivate me. Just suck me up, suck me in. And over the last minute, you have not once thought of a pink elephant. Why? Because you had something better to think about. See, what, what would happen then if in every situation of life, you would keep your focus steadfast upon Christ? And when you begin to notice that your, your, your spiritual gaze is turning other elsewhere, you allow the Holy Spirit to say, <clears throat> you're being distracted. You're right. And if you need to repent, repent, but then set your gaze firmly back on Jesus Christ. How are you going to walk in purity? You've got to keep your focus. You, you've got to allow him to be the guard upon your heart and your mind 
and keep your focus on Christ. So not only is it a focus on Jesus, number one, but number two, you've got to fill your mind up with his word. Psalm 12, verse 6 says that the words of the Lord are pure words. That's our word. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, filtered seven times. The word of the Lord is perfectly pure. It has been purified seven times. And so you realize, uh, imagine you have this cup of like scum water, like some muddy water. And I said, okay, here's your cup of water. It's interesting, you know, you got all the sediment down at the bottom and all this kind of stuff. If I had a, a pitcher of pure, clean, sweet water, and I began to pour it into the cup of murky, filthy junk water, do you realize as long as the pure water keeps pouring into the filthy water, it's only a matter of time before the cup is fully pure? It'll literally force out all the junk. And what's interesting is the moment you start pouring the pure water in, it actually stirs all that stuff up. <clears throat> so there's this almost ironic reality of, okay, I'm going to walk in purity. Lord, start filling me up. And then suddenly you're now aware of all the impurity in your life. And it actually feels like all this stuff is being drawn up. And you're like, whoa, there's a lot of impurity in my life. Well, yeah, it's being. But if you keep filling yourself up with the pure water of the word, do you realize it's going to really force all the junk out? And hey, it's only a matter of time. But if you have a, a, a cup full of junk water and you keep pouring on the good water, it's going to eventually flush all that stuff out and you're going to have a cup of pure water. That needs to happen in your life. Well, how's it going to take place? Fill your mind up with his word. That his word is pure. It's this pure, refreshing spring of water. Allow it to be poured into your life and leave force all this stuff out of your life that, it, that shouldn't belong there. And understand, yeah, it may take some time. It's a process. I understand. There, there's, there's this caked on mud on the corner that is so hard after years of just being there that, yeah, it may take some time for this thing to be removed. But keep filling your mind with the pure water of the word and it will flush all the junk out of it. I love what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. And of course, you have this memorized, but let me just read this. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present or offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Isn't that interesting? And then he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you, by testing, may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, how on earth is your mind going to be renewed and transformed by the word? I've said this several times already, but Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's the question. That actually is our question. How on earth are we going to keep our way pure? The answer, according to the psalmist, is by living according to your word. So if you want to walk in purity, you've got to take your life and live it according to the book. That you're not living by your experience. You're not living by how you feel about a situation. You're saying, Lord, I'm taking my life and bringing it under the authority in submission to your word. And I'm saying, I'm wrong. You're right. And so anything in my life that doesn't measure up to this book, I repent. And I'm declaring I'm in the wrong. You're in the right. Change whatever you want. I surrender all. And the only option you've got to walk in holiness and purity is to embrace the one who is holy and live according to his word. 
Which is why I don't think it's by accident that two verses later in verse 11, the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart. I've stored it up. I've treasured your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So how on earth are we going to keep our way pure? Well, we've got to live according to the word. How on earth are we going to live according to the word? Well, you better treasure and store up that word inside of you. Can I encourage you? The only chance you have to think upon that which is pure, to live a life of purity, is you've got to embrace the one who is pure, the one who is holy. And you've got to allow his word to fill up your mind and literally flush all the garbage out. Really quick, three reminders. You've got to remember this affects every area of your life. We're not just talking sexual purity. We are. But this goes far beyond just sexual purity. Holiness and purity is to affect everything in your life. How you talk, how you, how you think, how you behave, what you do with others, what you do privately. Which means this should, this should affect how you relate to other people. This should affect how you work down at your job. This should affect how you handle disagreements. Uh, this should handle what you watch, the kind of jokes that you laugh at. This should handle how you're going to call the company who's supposed to send you projector bulbs and was a week late and when they actually did send it and it arrived, there was only one instead of two. So guess how I get to respond this afternoon when I make a phone call? Impurity. Yeah, and when I get off that phone call, the Spirit of the Lord should be able to search my heart and be like, okay, that was done properly. Because what I want to say to them is probably not what I'm going to say to them. Which means I'm going to need Jesus, you know? <laughs> but this should affect every area of our life. Second reminder really quick. You're in the world, but you are not of the world. Or the way I've been rephrasing it, because I actually think it sounds better. You are in the world, but the world is not to be in you. This is just our temporary residence, folks. And the culture and the world has a way of thinking, has a way of success, has a way of dressing, has a way of, they, they have their own foolish philosophy and that should not be in you. And I don't have time to read it, but at some point I would encourage you to read John 17 verses 14 through 19. And in the high priestly prayer, Jesus is saying, hey, I am not of this world, neither are you of this world. And he makes this incredible statement. He says, hey, sanctify them. Make them holy by truth. That in this world, we are to be set apart. We are to be distinct. We are to be other than the world around us. That the world should not define us. Jesus needs to define us. Which means we should be easily identifiable in this world. And third, if I can just remind you, there is not even to be a hint of sexual immorality in our lives. According to Ephesians 5.3. And I know for many of us, that does not describe us. That we have lots of hints. We have lots of impurity. That, that we've just lived in these habits and these thought processes and these addictions year after year after year after year after year after year after year. And now they're so ingrained, we're just like, I don't, this is who I am. This has become my identity. Do you realize we have a God big enough to change our identities? That he can take a sinner and make them a saint. That he can take a prodigal son and make him a beloved son. That he can change a leper and turn it into a person who stands and walks and jumps around. 
that he can actually change your identity. And wouldn't it be interesting for us this morning just to come before the Lord and say, Lord, have at it. Whatever you need to do to change my life, I'm in. Lord, if there's any impurity in how I talk, any impurity how I think, any impurity how I live, any impurity of what I look at, any impurity of what I laugh at, any impurity of just any area of my life, change it. And again, the only option you have is to embrace the one who is holy. Would you go after Jesus this morning, the one who is pure, and allow him to begin to transform you, to give you the boldness to walk in purity and righteousness and truth? Would you allow him to sanctify your life? I I understand it's a process. I get it. But you need to be in the process. Don't justify sin. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Uh, Lord, our whole culture is just marred by impurity. Basically, anything that uh, is not you, this culture is glorifying. But Lord, what would it look like if we as believers were easily identifiable in this world because we just did not look like the world? We didn't think like the world. We didn't act like the world. We didn't laugh like the world. Lord, that all starts in our mind. So Lord, would you transform our hearts and our minds? Lord, would you root out every impurity? Would you root out every addiction? Would you break every chain that is holding And may we walk in freedom of triumph of victory that you have already purchased at the cross. Lord, I pray that you would purify your bride. Lord, your longing is a pure and spotless bride. And we are so marred and filthy. We are not ready for the wedding. So Lord, would you you bring revival to your church, to your bride? Lord, would you convict of sin, of judgment, of righteousness? Hey, Lord, would you search every crevice of our being and not let us justify any sin? Lord, we in this room just want to come before you and say, search and try our hearts. See if there's any wicked way within us. And Lord, if there is anything, if there's, if there's any thought process, processes that have been lingering, if there's any holds of lust or junk, Lord, if there's, if there's, if there's any addictions that we've just been chained to, Lord, I pray in the authority and the blood of Jesus that you would set us free that you would cause us to walk in the triumph that you have purchased. And Lord, I pray that especially as as these students are heading home in a week, Lord, I pray that the proving ground of their purity would not be here during their time at Ellerslie, but their proving ground would be at home, walking out in the realities of of life. And so, Lord, would you so bring purity into our lives and and a, a, a strong disposition to hold on to truth that, Lord, as we return home, that we would we would smile at the fact that we can live pure lives in any and every area. But Lord, I just, I confess I need you. We need you. So would you move upon us, Jesus, and would you transform our hearts and our minds? Thank you for what you're doing in these days. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.